0: And welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Who is Mike Nolan? Never used that one before. That's actually a pretty good question. And we're going to be getting that in a second. First, I want to introduce the other panelist, Pia Mancini. Hello.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: And our guest today, who I already gave you the name of, is Mike Nolan. He's calling in from London. Mike is the director at the Federation of Humanitarian Technologists and the assistant director at Open at RIT, which I'm very excited to talk about both of those things. Mike, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks. So what do you want to start with? What's the Federation of Humanitarian Technologists and what's Open at RIT?
2: I'll start with the Federation. Essentially, this organization came from my career background where I kind of started my career as a software engineer, developing technology for tech companies, but eventually I transitioned and worked in the humanitarian aid sector. So I was working with a lot of NGOs like the International Rescue Committee in Jordan, building technology to help programs that are, you know, helping refugees sort of recover from disaster and rebuild their lives and building technology to help these programs do that better. During my time in the sector, I noticed that the aid sector does not receive the same amount of support from tech companies that a lot of traditional big corporations do, whether it's standard consumer software or education or pharma or whatever. This sector was really underserviced. And so they used a lot of very old technology. And a lot of times, the sector, which is predominantly run by these nonprofits who do all their operations through grants, they just have so much paperwork and approval and decision approval processes that it just made doing anything impossible and so this is like super frustrating because i was doing field work so we were like trying to hand out cash packages to refugees we were trying to do training And so every time you do anything, you got to file seven different things in paperwork. You got to send it to like your finance department. It can only be in paper. So then they have to sign it off. And anytime anything's, you know, you have an off by one error, you have to start the whole thing over again. Uh, It took me six months before I had a desk to sit at. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, this is very frustrating. And before, like, you know, building open source software, a lot of times it's pretty easy to Get communities of like minded folks and get them together and help work on these software pieces. And so, why is this sector so underserved? And so, with that, I began thinking about building an organization that would serve that. And that's really what this Federation of Humanitarian Technologists is it's a UK based nonprofit. Our goal is to help aid sector organizations, both big and small, perform their jobs more effectively by building open source software that serves that. We were founded in February. It's been really crazy because there's me and my co-founder, Kavita Kapoor, have only met in person, I think, three times because of the whole COVID outbreak and being under constant lockdown. But that is the very long-winded gist of what the Federation is.
0: That is super amazing. So are there other, like, it seems like a pretty obvious need, right? There's a lot of NGOs in the aid sector that need tech help and I'm just curious why hasn't this been created before what else is out there to do this sort of open source work to help out NGOs
2: so there are some organizations that have worked to create technology projects there are some like companies that you know build certain pieces of software to solve certain needs and some of them are even open source like the Ushahidi project uh, is yeah. a great example it has funding and they build a piece of software that's really valuable and solves in like a direct need There's also, you know, large tech corporations do have occasionally run programs, whether it's Microsoft providing their office package to certain types of organizations, or occasionally they'll even build a certain piece of software and maybe open source it, and maybe it will be able to be sustained. But usually grant funding will fall off. So our sort of thesis as to why this is such a big issue within the aid sector is really closely tied to how the aid sector programs are funded. So Mm. aid sector programs don't really operate within like a market, like most companies do, where they build a service and then people pay for it and they just continue to like do that whole process, right? They give services, they make money, they hire people, they give services, they grow potentially. In the aid sector, because it's all done through natural disasters and conflict and stuff like that, what happens is something happens... That's bad. And foundations or governments or UN organizations around the world say, okay, we want to try to help this. And a lot of times they'll, you know, say they'll create a call for proposals for organizations that want to help. They say, send us, tell us what you're going to do. And then we're going to agree on this and create a grant and say, we're going to give you this much money. And you're going to spend it on, on doing these things. And then when that money runs out, you can ask us again or ask someone else and maybe we'll keep it going. And so that makes it really hard to do things like build, you know, software, especially complicated software. Maybe they, a tool that doesn't exist would help them do that. They have to know exactly what that tool is, if they're going to build it, because there's this huge contract that says, okay, well, you have to build exactly this thing and do exactly this with it. And anyone that's built software knows that oftentimes you have to pivot or, like, you need changes or feature requirements change or scope creeps. And so this funding strategy makes it really difficult. And maybe people can build businesses and try to, like, pre-build that software and sell it to these NGOs. But then oftentimes it limits who can buy it and who knows about it. Are the NGOs technical enough that they know what software is out there that they can use? And so it's this different sort of economy that aid sector organizations face that makes it really problematic for them to be able to create a software ecosystem that serves them. So what we think should happen is that there should be a separate kind of organization that builds and maintains software. And a lot of this is inspired, like, for instance, the U.S. Digital Service or GDS here in the U.K., where these are government organizations that are focused on building and providing software, oftentimes open source software, specifically for this one sector that's funded very different. And to ensure that we are building the right software, we're actually a membership organization. So we, at the NGOs and volunteer-based organizations and nonprofits that we work with, we want them to be members that directly control our roadmap, elect our board of directors to ensure that the funds that we receive are actually going to places that these organizations need.
1: That resonates so much with my experience. Like when I was back when I was building Democracy OS, like we were trying to get funding to do, I don't know, conferences in order to get a little bit left over to fund technology, because a lot of especially in, in the developing world, like a lot of the grants for these foundations, they won't fund softwares. They'll do capacity building, whatever that means. So I really like the approach of bringing people together to build tools that then you can federate or mutualize to all your members. That makes a lot of sense. Are you getting funding for this already? Or are you planning on building a membership organization
2: kind of fee? Or how are you thinking about that? In terms of funding, I'll be transparent here. We haven't gotten much. We are currently building a volunteer management suite in conjunction with a few local charities here around London. And we've gotten some funding for that on holding some events. We've had a hackathon. We have some like digital infrastructure stuff sponsored for email and chat servers. In terms of what this membership model is and how it overlaps with our funding, we don't want to gate people accessing software through like an expensive membership model, especially in the aid sector, Funding is very lopsided, where it oftentimes goes to these Western-based, very large organizations that have all this capacity to like apply for these grants. And oftentimes, they perform much worse than smaller, locally-based, community-based organizations that are more aware of the context. So we want to empower those smaller organizations just as much as we would these larger ones. And we know those smaller organizations don't have... The same amount of funds that they can buy into this so instead what we feel like we should do is we want to appeal to international funders that care about like these issues in the humanitarian aid sector we want to say we know you want your your money to go further for instance and the way to do that would be funding the software will make all these organizations more effective all ships rise with the tide and so if you fund programs like ours we will collect metrics on the impact that we have on these organizations and how effective they are. And that's how we will prove our use to you.
1: There's also proven models for this, right? OTF is a great example in the kind of internet freedom space. They're funding a lot of software that is being used by activists around the world. And they're like funding the development of the software for everyone. And like I can totally see how Gates Foundation or Rockefeller Foundation, like would, it just makes sense for them to get behind this. Because... It's true that it's a very reactive sector in the sense that something bad happens and they're like, oh, we need to go there. But at a higher level, most crises have very similar aspects to it. You still need to be able to provide identity for people who are being displaced. They're always going to need to move resources at scale very quickly. So those things are like patterns that every humanitarian crisis has. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. What do you think why aren't more people doing this? Because there's a lot of funding in the aid sector. Why isn't there a company that is doing this in a way that it's uh, profitable? That,
2: that's a really good question. Sorry um, to put it on the spot. No, I no, mean, no. this is all about thinking. <laughs> yeah. This is something that, that question I ask myself every day whenever I wake up. I don't know. You know, there is some funding and there are a lot of great organizations. The Digital Impact Alliance is a great example of an organization that's trying to do similar things to us, maybe in a potentially a different way. There's a lot of like more volunteer oriented open source groups that are trying to also create software that is needed in the sector. OVO comes to mind as a more recent example. So I think a lot of people are thinking about doing it. I think breaking into the aid sector is, is difficult. I feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to work in these field programs and, and to experience what I have. But there's not like, if you're a software person working in tech, I want to have an impact or I want to create software that's more geared towards the sector. There's not many positions open to do it or companies that do say like, we're building software for the sector. Oftentimes it's like software donated the sector. And so it's repurposed. Salesforce is a great example. Salesforce is oftentimes used by these organizations where it's the CRM, but like maybe you can use it to keep track of your beneficiaries.
1: Yeah. So And, and it comes with their own biases, right? <laughs> and their own <laughs> algorithms. And yeah, yeah, totally. So I know you're part of the ethical um, source working group at Sustain. Mm-hmm. How does this play into what you're doing? Because I guess you are building open source software for a sector where the issue of ethics and having unbiased as much as possible and so it plays really strongly because you are talking about giving aid to folks whose livelihoods and families depend on it. So how are you thinking about that in this context?
2: I think first things first, the aid sector in general is not necessarily inherently ethical And just because it's oftentimes like distributing resources to people in need. The aid sector comes a lot of times with its own issues of neocolonialism. And you see this through these large Western organizations and the deals that they enter oftentimes with large Western countries and foundations that can oftentimes create harm. And so actually it was my work in Jordan that sort of brought me into the ethical source group where... I worked on an employment program in Jordan for Syrians and low-income Jordanians. And that program involved creating an AI software to recommend jobs to people. And They called it like job matching. And so that in and of itself has a lot of potential for harm. And it's also within the aid sector. And oftentimes Lurk in the Ethical Source Group, I've participated a little bit on like their podcast working group and have conversations there. And so I think we need to be critical about the potential adverse effects that the software that we create can have. And so for me, this membership model, including people who are directly being impacted and those stakeholders in the creation of the software is, in my opinion, the most important part. You can't get a whole bunch of money to a bunch of people living in San Francisco and have them create software for people living in Jordan and expect to fully understand the context in which it's going to be used. You need to have people who are actually using it involved in the creation process. That's why open source community building is such a useful tool to have in these sort of situations and why it's a core part of our organization.
0: So I was looking on your GitHub and I see you have a couple of projects right now, but the main one is probably Coalesce. Can you talk a bit about what that is?
2: Yep. So Coalesce is our volunteering platform. So It's very early development, but it's a proof of concept. It's mostly just a side project being created by a few of us. The whole point of Coalesce was we started talking with a lot of different organizations based here in London. Southeast Rivers Trust is one. They run these programs where in the UK, there's a lot of river pollution. And so they run these programs where people come together and they help clean out the rivers so they have cleaner rivers. We've also worked with Camden Giving, who does a bunch of volunteer programs. Pride in London as well. So all these organizations, they're nonprofits. They get tons of people that want to come and help out. They're like, we like what you do and we want to volunteer. And they're massively understaffed. There are two to three people that run the entire organization. Pride in London has tens of thousands of volunteers, I think, every year for their, their, their Pride parade. So they get all these emails of people saying, Oh, I want to help out. And then there's one person, the poor soul, that has to answer each and every one of them and be like, okay, when are you free? Well, where do you live? Can you get to here? All right, we need to do this training thing first. And managing that data is oftentimes very difficult for them. And you get tons of people that fall out because the emailing back and forth just takes too long. So the whole point of this software is we want to create kind of an open registry of essentially like volunteering opportunities and organizations can create these opportunities. They can attach like training requirements to it. And then people can apply for that and track their status. If they are vetted and selected, then they can organize it in a more easy fashion. And then also use that data to obviously like report to their donors, make cases for additional grant funding. This was really inspired by a piece of software called OpenOps that was created by the U.S. Digital Services it has since been, unfortunately, I don't know how to say it, like repurposed as an internal jobs platform. And so we decided to just start new and take inspiration from their user experience.
1: Mike, can I ask you a question? And I don't mean anything by this, but why are you building this? Because this, I ask myself for Open Collective this a lot. This is something that is obviously very interesting. And at Open Collective, we always walk this line between, hey, are we just accepting financial contributions or do we want to move onto allowing collectives to receive different types of contributions and like volunteering work is obviously part of that. But I always struggle with the same question. I can't believe no one else is doing this. Like, why are we investing our time in doing this software in particular? Not, and in your case, maybe maybe you probably have the answer, but like the first thing was like, why are you spending your time building this and not something that is tailored to aid that no one else has that knowledge. Does this don't exist
2: in the world? We asked ourselves a lot of that same question. First of all, the last thing he said, shouldn't this already exist? This is not, you know, an innovative idea or anything. It's okay. It's like a job posting for volunteer opportunities. And so he looked around and we did this huge survey of all these organizations. They were mostly UK based, but still asking them what they did. And some of them use things like Salesforce. Some of them would use Google Forms, basic stuff like that. but this sort of same churn of emailing people back and forth. And there really wasn't anything that we could find. There were some really tailor-made pieces of software that was like, once you enter them in your system, like we can do some CRME sort of things. So as far as we could tell, there wasn't really any piece of software addressing this. Fascinating. Yeah. And when we talk to donors about this and try to get it funded, they're like, no, this definitely has got to exist.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) That was
2: my first reaction as well. We're in this weird position where oftentimes it's like you ever have someone come to you and they know you're a technology person. Like I got this great app idea and you have to be like, no, it already exists. Let me show you it. So we oftentimes feel like we're in that position where we're trying to propose our cool app idea and it's no, man, (laughs) it's not. (laughs) With regards to your earlier question, why don't we focus directly on things in the aid sector and why are we doing this in particular? We chose this for a couple of different reasons. The first of which was, I'm a recent immigrant to the UK. I've only been here for a year. My co-founder, Kavita, was born and raised here and has been in the UK for her whole life for the most part. So we knew a lot of local organizations. We were well connected here. And then also COVID did this weird thing where everyone's locked down. And especially within the aid sector, a lot of programs got cut. And a lot of programs are not thinking about how they can expand or make their processes more efficient or building new partnerships, but rather they're just thinking about how they can survive, how they can continue delivering the most bare bones service provision because both the, the international funding community is like, okay, well we want to fund COVID stuff now because that's what's best. And then also it's just, it's really difficult to provide services. So those two things are like, all right, let's think about starting local. And then let's, if we're going to think about being an organization that's creating products, maybe we should just, as a young organization, we should build a product ourselves to prove that we we can do it, prove out some of our more development-oriented methodologies and get some learnings from that. And maybe that'll make getting funded later easier. I do not know if it will, but that's a hope.
1: There's a really interesting funding model that some open source software have that is, for example, Electron that is funded by different companies like Slack, GitHub, blah, 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 that they're using it in their desktop apps. So while you were talking, I was thinking like, maybe this is a great model for you because if a lot of organizations and a lot of other kind of stakeholders in the ecosystem want to see this software in the world, then maybe they should all pitch in and fund it together and you can create a way for them to, to, to put a stake and say, hey, I want to see this in the world and we're all going to come together and put money for this particular project. It seems like an interesting way to fund this type of development that is obviously useful for many actors.
2: I think that is a really interesting model. One of the things that, again, to be totally transparent, like a lot of the stuff I'm learning about I would say I'm generally fairly inexperienced where most of my career has been as like an implementation. And so this is my first time building an organization. I think obviously like software to get to an initial kind of stage where you can offer product to people, it's fairly expensive to do that. And so with a lot of the organizations we talk to, they're very interested in saying, oh, if you can do that, like we have like product concepts we say, oh, well, you want this and like, yeah, we want that. We'll like we'll pay a monthly fee. It's fine. We'll just factor it into all of our like grant proposals from here on out if you can deliver that. And it's cool. Yeah, definitely. We just need like tens of thousands of dollars to get, <laughs> to get that and then we can offer it to you. And so I think you make a good point where it's especially when you have an initial product, A funding model like that where all these people need it and they just want to pitch in to have it It makes sense. I think when it comes to what about for the products that we don't know that we need yet and we need to research and and build those. What about doing direct field research with every organization that is like providing humanitarian aid that sort of like overhead that you see in, in large tech companies to explore markets and find out where they can deliver. But there's people doing that. They're getting paid to do that. And it gives them like a, an area. To, they know what sort of technology they want to create. How do we create an organization that has standing staff to look at the aid sector, to work with all the organizations operating there, find out what they need, and then develop products to suit those. Oftentimes in tech, this is funded by VC. You have venture capitalists that say all oh, these people want to build these things and we think these have potential and we're going to fund them. But what about for the public sector or civil society? How, what does that look like and how can we create a system that, that suits that?
0: So I really like what you're doing. That's super cool. Where can people get involved with that?
2: We're very young. We, we have a small community. We've run a few events that we post up on our website. So federationof.tech is our website. Cool. It has both uh, mine and my co-founder's email on there, I believe. So if you're interested and you wanna get involved, we're small enough that you just reach out to me, the founder, we have a closed chat room and that sort of thing on Mattermost. And so if you want like updates, we usually post them there. So reach out to me directly. My email is mike Tech, and we can definitely, get you involved and keep you updated with any sort of our goings on over the next, you know, coming years. And hopefully you'll have a
0: chance to use coalesce there because you get too many people and you have to organize them somehow. So that's great. <laughs> I really yes. want to move Tech super swift because we are running up to time, but we have five minutes left. And while we're recording this, we're recording this O oh, audience on January 7th, it's a Thursday, but it's also the Monday of the year. It's the first week of the year. And Mike Nolan has just started a new job as assistant director at open at RIT, which is a bit different than Federation of Humanitarian Technologists, but super cool. Mike, I want to let you give a short pitch talking about what that is and what you're doing there.
2: Yeah. So I believe you already have an awesome podcast with Steven Jacobs talking all about the program. I'll just quickly rehash it here. Open at RIT is a department within the Rochester Institute of Technology. It's a university based in Rochester, New York, and also my alma mater. The department's goal is to help create and sustain communities around any sort of open source projects. So this goes to any open-source software created within the institution, but also open data projects, open science projects, things that are any sort of commons that is creating within the university for research purposes we're going to help those projects create and sustain communities around those it's really cool being a graduate from the institution i was one of the first students that got the open source minor it was like really affected me in my career and to be able to come back and help build that program is very exciting and also i think there is some really interesting overlap between how an academic institution can fund a program like this, that is building and sustaining these more open commons programs in a way that isn't really a lot of times the typical way that we see open source software companies sustain themselves. And so I think there's a lot of learnings that can be drawn from both, but we will see. It's my first week on a job, so I can't talk too much about my day-to-day going ons.
0: That's all right, and that's super cool. I didn't realize that you came from RIT as well, Justin Flory is also coming out of open at RIT or rather just RIT. And now he's part of the alumna who works with Stephen Jacobs and the like, which is super cool. He's on the sustain organizing committee, I guess would be what you would call us as well. I think the podcast you mentioned was actually impactful open source podcast, which I've I put in the show notes. I'm not sure we've had him on sustain yet for Stephen Jacobs. That's, Awesome. I wish you the best of luck there. Open their IT is super cool. It's awesome to see universities moving into this space and trying to do open source like at scale. And I think Stephen Jacobs in general and just the entire department will do really well at that. So I wish you the best personally at that job. That's super cool. Maybe we can have you come on at another time to talk more at length around what you've done there as opposed to how is payroll working? It's the, the first <laughs> thing. I don't Okay. And hopefully you get a desk this time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Luckily this position's remote, so that I have under my own control, but yes, very excited SJ and Justin Flory is a huge, uh, really close friend of mine and also just very cool person. Yes.
0: Speaking of uh, friends of ours and people we want to highlight and talk about, it's probably a good time to go to spotlight. So spotlight is the bit at the end of the show where we say, these are things that have helped us out in our career. Helps us out with open source and just projects that need love, need light, whatever. It's pretty open to interpretation. Old listeners will understand. So Pia Mancini, what is your spotlight today?
1: So my spotlight is for a little productivity app that I use a lot. Unfortunately, it's not open source, but I really like them. It's called Workflowy and it's infinitely nested bullet points, which for someone with OCD issues like me, is like, ah, amazing. It's been very helpful for me to just organize my day, my life, my, you know, it has tags that are really handy. So yeah, work If you need a place where to put everything that's going on, I would recommend trying it out.
0: And Pia is one of the most competent people I know at work. So if she says something, you should probably all listen. I'm going to probably get that now. Thank you. My spotlight today is a paper that came out in 2011, actually called Crisis MT, developing a cookbook for MT in crisis situations. After the Haitian earthquake, some people at Google were really well placed to actually try to get machine translation up for Haitian Creole, which was basically untouched by science at the time, by tech. And within like seven days, they had a working machine translation going up so they could do first responders, automatic translation. Super cool work. The paper is very short and it's definitely just worth reading. It's a good read. This really helped me along in my studies. Also Robert Monroe, who is one of the three authors along with William Lewis and Stephen Vogel is a super awesome dude as well. And I've talked to him before. So I really suggest checking out crisis MT. This has moved on now. And there's things like interact, which is funded by the EU, which does crisis MT at scale and people are getting a whole lot better at this, which is great because language shouldn't be a barrier when people just need aid. So that's my spotlight today. Mike Nolan, what's yours?
2: So for my spotlight, I was going to put the Ethical Source Working Group, but I feel like we talked about them a lot. And if I get the chance to plug more people, then I'm going to take it. So I want to make my spotlight on the Open Mind project. For those of you who don't know, the OpenMind project is an open source community that is building software that helps you to do machine learning in a way that maintains privacy through things like differential privacy and multi-party computation. The Open Mind Project also just released their first AI, private AI learning series. So this was tons and tons of work by lots of very awesome and smart people. The Open Mind Project is a fellow there last year and really pushed my career forward and my ability to learn about privacy and AI quite a bit. super awesome project, such a great, awesome, welcoming community. Everyone I've ever interacted with there has been just such cool people. So definitely check it out if you're doing an AI project and you want to you know, preserve your users' privacy, look at this. I think this project is really going to change how AI tech, especially like within healthcare, can operate. So many cool things are going to come happening out of it over the next few years. Thank you yes. so much.
1: I don't know if you knew this, uh, Mike, but open mind is actually part of the Open Collective Foundation we are physically hosting them and they're a program under the foundation and they're amazing. So it made me so happy to hear that. <laughs> I'm glad you were part of it. <laughs> Thank
0: you. I also want to give a shout out quickly. So as well as getting involved, if you want to email Mike at Federation of tech, I believe was the email that you, you put out to get involved with that, please do so. But also if you liked hearing Mike talk, he is actually on a podcast that's run by sustain the ethics podcast. So we have a couple of podcasts here. It's not just uh, me and Alyssa and Eric and Pia and Justin talking. It's also other people. So Ethics Podcast is done in collaboration with Ethical Source, and you should all go check it out. And Mike is one of the panelists there. And I believe you're having more episodes coming this year, I hope.
2: Yes, we are. We have a big schedule and list of people that we're going to hopefully start bringing on in the coming months. So, yes, keep an eye out. We have a lot of very cool, awesome people who are we're hoping to have on for this year.
0: If you want to check it out, go to anchor.fm slash ethics and open source for now. And that is where you can check out the ethics podcast done with ethical source and with uh, the sustained community and Mike. So super cool. All right. I think that's it for today. Thank you so much, Mike, for being on this. it has been great to have you and best of luck. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine.